everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. In 2001, uh, I took a cue from Jed Clampett. I loaded up the truck and moved to Beverly, except I went to Louisiana. Big difference between Beverly Hills and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But I did. I loaded up my yellow Penske truck. And uh, the first house I rented was in Baker, Louisiana, which just a little bit to the north of Baton Rouge. And uh, that's back in the day when I was in radio and TV and broadcasting. And early, when I started my career in radio, one of my bosses, one of the guys that kind of managed me, had to set me down and, and risk putting tension in my life and me getting really mad and blowing up at him. And, and he had to explain some things to me. He said, um, it's, it's pronounced Monday. I said, yeah, Monday. He said, no, 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 it's Monday, Tuesday. I said, yeah, Tuesday. He's like, no, there's no E on the end of it. It's day, Tuesday, right? Y'all, I'm born in Antlers, Oklahoma. I graduated from Oolaga to Lala High School. I'm a hick. I'm a redneck. Sorry about you, but that's just how I am. I've got a little bit of that Oklahoma twang in me, and it was really bad when I was about 23 years old, all right? So your boy, redneck, in all his glory, moves from Tulsa down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and they looked at me like a cow at a Newgate. Like, they did not, like, what, what kind of language are you picking up there? You know what I'm saying? Like, where's all my swamp people at? You know? Get them a little bit. You know, Troy. I swear Troy was my neighbor when I lived down there. I had a guy right across the street from Jerry and I's house. We live over there. And one day he, he, he pulled a John boat up there in a boat, and he saw me outside, and I was moaning, going, hey, come on out of here. What? Like, come on out of here. And I go over there, and the dude had three massive on steroids snapping turtles in his boat. And I go, all right. And he goes, oh, man, that's John. That is John Goody right there. What? <laughs> oh, man, that's that neck meat right there. That's John some Goody. You're going to eat that? Yeah, you and your wife, y'all come on over there. Yeah, because I call BLM, we're going to eat that. And I'm like, no. Like, I just can't. I can't. I can't. I'm not going to eat that down there. And so you got a redneck that says Monday that moves down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And here I am trying to pronounce all these Cajun words like Laplace. But that's not how they say it. It's Lapla. It's like, what? You know, say it right. And then I still don't know how to say Opelousas, Opelousas. I don't know. And like I'm on the radio giving traffic updates to all these crazy things like Labatteville. I don't even know if that's right. And here's the deal. Even if I was saying it grammatically correct, that ain't how they say it down there, you know? And so you, you, you clearly, okay, so, but I have the same sympathy for people that moved to Oklahoma. Some of, y'all, some of y'all didn't grow up in Oklahoma and you moved here and you said, hey, let's go. I hear there's some cool stuff over in Tahlequah. <laughs> what? You mean Tahlequah? Yeah. Yeah, let's go up there to the birthplace of Will Rogers up in Oolaga. No, it's Oolaga. You know, say it right. You know, so I, I can have some sympathy. Somebody trying to move to Oklahoma and do this. Matter of fact, you can tell if somebody has kinfolk or has lived south of I-40 by asking them to say one word. One word. And that word is Durant. <laughs> just do rant. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, oh, I get it. Some of y'all are snobs. Y'all are Yankees up here. You Tulsa people, it's Durant. There ain't no E in it. It's not Durant. 
I'm from Antlers. I'm from south of I-40. It's Durant. Like it's D-E-W. Durant, Oklahoma. Come on, somebody say amen if you know what I'm talking about. I can tell if you're a Yankee or not. Durant is the county seat for Bryan County, Oklahoma. Not Brian. It's Bryan. Bryan County, Oklahoma. And Bryan County, Oklahoma has some other cool places like Bochita has a K in it. Caddo and Solera with a C, okay? So it's one of the most southern counties in the state of Oklahoma, and it sits right on the Red River. And really, you know, the Red River is that thing that separates us from the United State of Texas. <laughs> That's how they view themselves. Bless them, okay? So Bryan County is named after William Jennings Bryan. He was an American lawyer. He was an orator. It means he gave speeches. He was a politician. And beginning in 1896, he kind of emerged as a dominant force in the Democrat Party. He ran three times as the party's nominee for president of the United States, 1896, 1900, and 1908. He served in the House of Representatives from 1990, or 1891 to 1895, he served as the Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson in 1913 to 1915. And because of his ability to just be captivating when he gave speeches, his rhetorical power, his early fame, he was one of the youngest presidential candidates ever. He became known as the Boy Orator. Yes, rather than running for president three different times, what... Mr. Bryan is most known for is his role in the Scopes Monkey Trial in Tennessee in 1925. Um, by the way, Mr. Bryan is not from Bryan County. He's from Nebraska. We don't think he ever been to Durant. It was just something that, that they wanted to honor him and, and his legacy and so on and so forth. And so he, he's not even an Okie. So in 1922, the legislature of Tennessee passed a law it became nicknamed the Butler Act. And uh, they made it illegal for schools, for public education to teach anything except the Genesis narrative of creation. The reason why that was such a thing, because there had been a gentleman who kind of come up on the scene a couple of decades earlier by the name of Charles Darwin, I'm sure a name you've heard of. He published a work on the origin of species in 1859 where he claimed that we as human beings actually just over millions, if not billions of years, evolved like monkeys are our ancestors, right? And evolution goes against the Genesis creative narrative that in the, image God, in, the, in the beginning God created. So the Tennessee legislature says, listen, you can only teach the Genesis narrative of creation and science. So a Tennessee high school teacher by the name of John T. Scopes was accused of violating this act, okay? And, and rumor has it that the Scopes monkey trial in part was an attempt to, to bring some publicity to Tennessee, specifically Dayton, Tennessee. There were a couple of big industries that were there, and so these guys kind of wanted to make a little bit of noise, whether good or bad, to kind of put Dayton, Tennessee on the map. And so both sides of this trial, you had Scopes, and then you had the people of Tennessee both sides of those hired the best attorneys, the best orators, speech givers that money could buy. And for 11 days, they put Dayton, Tennessee on full display for the American newspapers. Now, Mr. Scopes lost the trial. 
He was fined $100, and the winning attorney was none other than William Jennings Bryan. And the Scopes Monkey Trial was one of the most famous court cases in the United States of America. Until January of 1995, when the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson began arguments. Los Angeles County Superior Court. Anybody remember the trial of O.J. Simpson? All us mature, older people, right? They began arguments in January. The case concluded. The jury deliberated, delivered their uh, verdict on October 3rd of 1995. I personally remember watching it live on TV as it came down that afternoon. A trial that lasted the better part of nine months. On October 3rd, it was estimated 100 million people worldwide watched or listened to the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial announcement. Long-distance telephone companies, kids, back in the day, if you were going to call somewhere that was outside of your little area, you had to call long distance, right? Now you just pick up a cell phone and call China. Nobody cares. But back in the day, there's a long distance company. Long distance companies reported that their call volume declined by 58%. People weren't calling anybody. They were watching TV. Trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange decreased. The stock market didn't, but just trading volume. People weren't buying and selling stock. It decreased by 41%. It's reported that water usage decreased during that hour because people avoided going to the bathroom. They were glued to the TV. So much work stopped, it is estimated that the verdict announcement of O.J. Simpson cost the American economy over $480 million in lost productivity because so many people stopped and were watching. America stopped to see the outcome of the people versus California versus O.J. Simpson. Big legal moments in American history held wide in public view for all to see. Both sides get their opportunities to present their facts, present their evidence, their counter-arguments. Big cases, but neither of them in the course of worldwide history would compare to the trial of the ages. False evidence, perjured witnesses. Jesus would endure six, not one, not two, but six speedy trials all in the course of half a night and half of a day. Mark chapter 14 Jesus had shared that Passover meal. It's a holiday meal. He'd shared that with his 12 disciples. In the middle of that, Judas gets up and leaves. He had already prearranged to, to betray Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders. So Judas gets up and he goes on to, to tell them where they'll be able to find Jesus. And so now it's Jesus and his 11 remaining disciples. The Bible says they finished their meal, sang a night, went out into, or they sang a hymn and went out into the night. They crossed diagonally over the, the biggest part of Jerusalem, if they will. And Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means place of crushing where Jesus would spend hours in prayer and most of his disciples would spend sleeping. Judas would lead the religious leaders and they had brought with them this time the temple guard. They would arrest Jesus there in that garden. In that moment, the disciples would desert Jesus. 
Peter would kind of hover in the shadows, if you will. He kind of trying to catch a glimpse that he would later deny knowing Jesus three times before the rooster would crow. John would, would tell that he would get just a little bit of access to those proceedings and be able to just kind of be there for a couple of those moments. I got a lot to read today as we're going to read Mark's account of two of the six trials. So I beg you just kind of be patient with me, but I'm going to let Mark tell that story. If you're with me, say amen. Here we go. Mark chapter 14. We'll start with verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders and the teachers of religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Verse 55, inside the leading priest and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. But they couldn't find any. But they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him. (laughs) But they contradicted each other. Verse 57, finally, some men stood up, gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands. In three days, he'd build another one made without human hands. But even then, they didn't get their stories straight. If you keep reading in Mark chapter 14, certainly encourage you to do that this week. You'll, You'll run into Peter's denial of knowing Jesus. I want to pick up at Mark chapter 15 where Jesus is now in the second phase of a different trial. Mark only tells two. There's six in total by the time you take all four Gospels and, and weave the stories together. Let's jump to Mark chapter 15, verse 1. It said, very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, teachers of religious law, and the entire high council met next to discuss their steps. They bound Jesus, led him away, took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Yes, that's Pontius Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you've said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, are you going to answer them? What about these charges they're bringing up against you? But Jesus said nothing. But Jesus said nothing. Much to Pilate's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner Anyone the people requested. And Rome would do this kind of as a favor to the people. They wanted to be in good graces with the people. They were a very conquering, very powerful, very cruel oppressor. But they would do things like this as a gesture of kindness and goodwill towards the people that they ruled over. Verse 7, one of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who'd committed murder in an uprising. He was a guy that was trying to rebel against Rome. And there were people that died in that, and he had possibly killed either Roman officials or Roman soldiers, and that's the one the people wanted. Verse 8, the crowd went to Pilate and asked, release Barabbas as that custom. Verse 9, would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked, referring to Jesus? For he realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest had stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? What should I do with this man called the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. (laughs) Why? Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? What has he done? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. 
So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he ordered Jesus to be flogged with a lead-tipped whip and they turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. I know, I realize I've read a lot of the story there. And Mark really only kind of hits some of the highlights. Mark, Mark, again, he's the active gospel writer. There's a lot of details that Mark leaves out that maybe Luke, Matthew, or, or John would include because Mark's kind of a bottom line kind of guy. Like, hey, we went on vacation, you know what I'm saying? And, and we took a flight and we got there where there's other people that will tell you, oh, well, we had a layover in Denver and the food was amazing. You know, Mark's just a bottom line kind of guy. And that's what he does. He leaves a lot of details out. He kind of hits the highlights. Mark really only tells us two of the trials, if you wish. But when you take all four of the gospels and put them together, Jesus had to go through six of those moments. Really, two of them are more interrogations and four of them are actually legal trials. So I want to kind of walk through these quickly. And I'll be honest with you, as I was studying this week, I, I, I never put that together. I never sat down and counted how many trials. It was six. Are you six? Yeah. Six. Half a night, half a day, Jesus goes through six trials. It took O.J. Simpson, y'all, almost nine months. Here we go. The first one wasn't so much a trial, although it can be counted as that, as it was an interrogation by Annas, okay? That story is found in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. He was not the high priest. He was the former high priest. He'd been removed by a Roman governor because of some stuff that went on. And here's what's interesting about this interrogation or trial is that it was illegal. According to Jewish law and Jewish custom, you could not do legal business. You could not have a court case, could not have a trial. You could not do that while it was dark. And the thought behind that was that only truth would be exposed in the fullness of daylight. So it's against Jewish law to have a court case held at night, but yet this former high priest, Annas, interrogates Jesus. So that's one. Number two is an interrogation, but it could also be considered a trial by Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the current high priest. That story is found in Luke 22, verse 40, uh, 54 to 65. This takes place at the high priest's home. And by the way, the former guy we talked about, Annas, who was the former high priest, Caiaphas is his son-in-law, Okay family business. Also an illegal interrogation because it was still dark according to the timeline we put together, okay? So there's not judges, there's no grand jury, there's no governing body there. Really, it's just the, leading, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the elders, they bring him to the high priest's home and they're making all these accusations and, and Jesus doesn't even engage in the argument. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't really say a word. The third trial is actually a trial. It's by the governing body, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now it happens the morning of Friday, so it is daylight. And the reason why they have this trial is to make this legal, okay? Because remember that law is you can't do it in dark. Well, now the sun has come up, and I mean the minute that it's daylight, the minute the sun's come up, they have this trial in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. It's found in Luke 22, Okay, verse 66 through 71. You still with me? Okay, the Sanhedrin did not have the power to do anything other than declare him guilty. They did not have the power to sentence him to death, didn't really have power to sentence him to prison or anything. All they did was have the power to find him guilty, and that's it. Only Rome, only the governing authority of Rome could sentence someone to a death sentence. So that's where trial number four comes in. And the fourth trial 
would be with Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And it's his first time. It's his first conversation with Jesus. And so it's Pontius Pilate's first trial with Jesus, found in Luke 23, the first six verses. It's in that story where Jesus is asked by Pilate. Pilate says, are you the one they call the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, you've said it. Pilate also discovers that Jesus was a Galilean. He did his ministry and really was from the area of Galilee. Here's the problem with that. Pontius Pilate had no authority over Galilee. That wasn't in his area of governance, if you will. So he's like, oh, you're from Galilee. Well, yeah, I can't, I can't, there's nothing I can do here. And he sends him to the governor who actually was the governor of Galilee, a guy by the name of Herod Antipas, all right? So now we have the fifth trial where Jesus would stand before Herod Antipas. That story's found in Luke 23, verses eight through 12. Bible says that Herod was actually delighted to get to talk to Jesus. He'd heard so much about him. Like, you know, maybe he'll do a magic show or a miracle or something like that. But Jesus would not answer any of his questions, would not answer any of the allegations. So Herod's like, you know, this is gonna be a mess. This is politically gonna be a thing. And so I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. So he actually sends him back to Pontius Pilate. Now, the Bible also tells us that Pilate and Herod did not like each other. They were political rivals. But because of the events of this day on Good Friday, because Pilate sent him to Herod and Herod sent him back, the Bible says they actually mended their relationship and actually became friends from that day forward, which leads to the sixth and final trial, Pilate's second trial with Jesus. All right, he had him once. He knew it was going to be a mess, and so he's like, oh, he's not mine. He's a Galilean. I can't do anything. And so he sends him on to Herod. Herod don't want anything to do with that, sends him back to Pilate. This story is found in Luke 23, verses 13 through 25, all right? And this trial is where we're going to drill into Pilate a little bit, Pilate's predicament. He's got a big problem on his hand, and some of that is how he got to be there. Some of that's the area that he governed. So Pilate was actually the son-in-law of the Top guy, the head of the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor Tiberius. Pontius Pilate had married his daughter, okay? So he's married into the family. And of course, the father-in-law wants to get his son into the family business, so he sets him up in Judea to be a governor. The problem with Judea is they were a people that were pretty rebellious. Like, it was always kind of a hornet's nest. The Jewish people, they believed God was their king. God was their authority. And so they were constantly just always rebelling against the Romans. And so it, there was just always uprisings, always rebellions going on in there. And so now Pilate has a mess on his hands because this could go one of two ways. John chapter 19, verse 8 says that Pilate was more frightened than ever. So he's very nervous about this situation. He wants to make sure he handles it right, okay? Number one, if you're the son-in-law of the emperor, <laughs> you don't want to be a problem for the family. No pressure, Right? So his father-in-law, Tiberius, appointed him to be the governor in AD 26. He only held that role for 10 years because things did not go well during his reign. He was actually removed. His job, maintain law and order, pretty rough place. The Jews hated the Romans. They believed God was their king and ruler. They always rebelled. His job was to maintain law and order, keep the peace, hand out justice, be a judge, if you will. But most importantly was to collect taxes for Rome to fund the Roman military. That's the job. And here's the deal. If you can't do it, 
There was a massive Roman army that was full of up-and-coming ruthless leaders that were more than willing. They would love to have their opportunity to replace you and have their chance at leadership and be a governor. Historians record Pilate as quite stubborn and cruel, demanding, disrespectful of all religious and spiritual things. Yet John tells us in the story that he was nervous, even more afraid. He was afraid of a Jewish uprising. He was afraid this would not look good on him, afraid he would look as a weak leader, that he didn't have the ability to govern. He was afraid he would look bad in the eyes of Rome, and particularly in the eyes of his father-in-law, who, the emperor who'd given him that opportunity. And there's also this thought that Pontius Pilate was afraid because what if Jesus really was something? What if he really was the son of God? So Pilate's got a big problem on his hand. He's got a ruckus crowd out there that wants Jesus to be crucified, but, but yet he's going to find him innocent. But the Jewish leaders, they would do anything. They would tell lies about Pilate. They would send a convoy to Rome to say, Pilate is treasonous towards you. Caesar, we're loyal to you. And Pilate, is, he's a traitor. They would do anything to manipulate Pilate to get what they wanted. Does that make sense? Luke 23. Then Pilate called together, and this is Luke telling part of this story. We're out of Mark, we're into Luke. Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion. He sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. Watch this. It's right there. Rome, the authority of Rome, the governor of Rome, Pontius Pilate himself, found Jesus innocent because of politics and pressure he gave in. It was political pressure that got Pilate to get him a bowl of water and a towel and he washed his hands and he's like, this is on you. I find him innocent and if you want to kill him, it's on you. And he turned him over to the cruelty of the Roman army to be brutally crucified. Let that sink in for just a second. Don't miss what Luke is telling you. That Jesus was found innocent. Yes, he was sinless. Yes, he was innocent in the eyes of his heavenly father, God, who was seated in the throne. But he was also found innocent in the eyes of his earthly government and authority. Rome found Jesus innocent. And he died anyway. So, everybody good? couple practical thoughts for you and I. So if you're new with us today, my name is Brent Kellogg. My initials are BK. Um, it's really important I tell you that, and I'm going to show you why. Everybody repeat after me. It's really important that you say this. Everybody, everybody say, I love BK. Did that one time a guest walked out and goes, y'all sure do like Burger King around here. I'm like, hey, baby, have it your way. No, I'm, I mean, because I'm going to say some stuff that some of you might not want to hear. Can we get real for a minute? Can we have some good conversation? So here's my goal for you. As long as God has you here at Hill Spring Church, as long as I have the honor of being your pastor and I get to unpack the Bible, I, I want you to be on this journey where you are becoming more spiritually mature, where you're growing, you're behaving and acting more like Christ. And to do that, sometimes we have to let the hard things speak to us. So can we have some real conversation this morning? 
So number one, a couple of practical thoughts for you and I that we should respond like Jesus. In any one of those six trials, he could have proven who he was. He could have proven he was the Messiah. You know, when kids are little, it's kind of fun to reach over there and grab their, you know, like do that on their nose and then stick your thumb out. And they're like, give it back, give it back. Right? You know, that's kind of fun to do that, right? Jesus could have walked up to Pilate and gone and literally pulled his nose off. <laughs> Put it back on. I mean, he's the son of God. He could have done that. But he didn't. He didn't say anything. Pilate and Herod actually were curious. It said that Herod was pleased to get to visit with Jesus, and Jesus didn't say anything to him. Pilate tried to help him. John 19, why won't you talk to me, Pilate said. Don't you understand? I have the power to set you free or crucify you. In the midst of his trial, in the midst of the accusations, the lies, the things that were being said about him, for the most part, Jesus remained Silent, never defended himself, didn't feel like he had to, never made an excuse, never played the victim part. For the most part, Jesus remained silent in the midst of his storm. That's hard. That's hard when somebody's accusing or somebody's gossiping or somebody's saying stuff about you or one of your family members. It's hard because on the inside of us, there's this fear. There's this worry. Well, who's going to defend me? Well, who's going to speak up for me? Who's going to tell my side? Who's going to fight for me? And Jesus in that moment feels no need to respond to the wrongful accusers because he knows there's a bigger picture than the momentary trial that he's in. There are bigger things going on that you and I can't see, we can't feel. This moment might feel really, really hard. It's me against the world. But there are bigger things that are going on than the momentary trials that we are walking through. Jesus trusted the sovereignty, the power, and the control of God in that situation. So we, we're gonna, we're gonna, we, you said, most of you, some of y'all didn't say it. Rick Taylor didn't say anything. Yeah, I ain't falling for that again. Because we, we need to be real for just a second if we're going to get better. Do we want to come to the place where we can find ourselves in a storm or find ourselves in a worst case scenario where we have the faith and the ability to just trust God? Do we want to be people that can walk through trials? Want to be people that can walk through storms with the faith and confidence that Jesus had in that moment? I don't know about you, but I want to get there. I ain't there yet, but I want to have that type of relationship and trust and faith and confidence in my Savior. Amen, everybody? Mark 14, verse 55. I know we've read this one. Read it again. It said, inside the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. So many false witnesses, meaning they lied, they spoke out against him, but they contradicted each other. Guys, get, get your story straight. If you're going to lie, at least lie together. Finally, some men stood up and gave a false testimony. They lied. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands in three days, and then I'll build another made without human hands. But Verse 59, but even then... They couldn't get their story straight. Do you understand what Mark is saying? There were people lying and accusing and telling stories, lying and accusing and gossiping, lying and accusing and being negative about Jesus. Do you understand that? Then you and I need to respond like Jesus, but we also need to rely on the truth. Early in the story, they had to find people to give false testimony, to lie. Just, I don't care what you say, just make stuff up. 
The problem is they couldn't even get their story straight. They're lying, they're lying, they're lying, and Jesus never once responded to their accusations. Never responded to their lies. Never once said, he's a liar. Never once said, fake news. He never played the victim. He didn't cry. He didn't cuss them out. Because he faced it with faith and confidence and boldness and silence. Now let's talk about you and I. Do we know the difference between criticism and truth that may be hard that we don't want to hear? We live in a day and time, if it's true or not, somebody tells me something I don't want to hear, we get defensive. Someone, and I'm going to pretend someone who loves us, someone who loves you, someone who loves me, they have no agenda to hurt you, but they tell you something that's a little bit hard and you don't want to hear it. What do we do? We if you don't believe me, just ask any one of our teachers that happened to put a C on a report card one time. <laughs> I don't go so good because I can't believe that teacher gave my kid a C. Maybe your kid earned the C. No? Okay. We become the victims. Jesus was found innocent by Rome. If anybody was a victim, it was him. He was innocent by Rome, and he never claimed to be the victim. He never wrote a letter of protest. He never called a political official. He didn't get on Facebook. He didn't get on the phone and go, you are not going to believe what Caiaphas and his little minion said about me. Because he knew in the end, the truth will set you free. My friends, we've got to learn to rely on the truth. So here, how do you and I know the difference between criticism and truth that we just don't want to hear? Here's the difference. Number one is the heart of the presenter. The person that brings you the hard thing, the person that brings that, like just a couple of questions you ask yourself, when somebody tells you something that makes you mad, hurts your feelings and all that, you know what I'm saying? Are they a good person? Like, have they ever hurt me before? Do, do they care about me? Have they hurt other people? Like, is this what they do? They just go around blabbing criticism? Because if it is, that's a whole different conversation. But if they love you, they've never hurt you before like that. Is there something that they're saying that maybe I need to improve on? Maybe I need to listen to. Think about these people who love us. They're willing to risk bringing tension into the relationship. They're willing to ruin their day for you to help you get better to help you grow. So a couple of weeks ago, I was having lunch with a fellow, and I knew him, but I didn't know him that way. I didn't know how he would handle like an embarrassing situation or handle a moment or whatever, and, and he had a, right there, had a little something, something, you know what I'm saying? And so I'm like, okay, well, maybe the next bite, like he'll knock it off and it'll just fall out, you know, like, nope, okay. Maybe here in a minute, and like, you know, I do that, I kind of like do that, mm -mm, no. So this becomes my internal dialogue. I have no idea what he was saying because I'm sitting there having this conversation with myself going, I'm just not sure how he's going to respond. I'm not sure how he's going to handle this awkward conversation. Hey, buddy, you got something right there on your face. Am I going to embarrass him? I would want somebody to tell me, right? Is he going to think I'm rude? Am I rude? Is he going to think I'm that guy? Am I that guy? What if I have something on my face and I don't know? You know what I'm saying? So there's dialogue going on in my head. So I, enough. 
Like, I, I look at him and go, bro, I love you enough to tell you you got a little something, something right there. He's like, oh, man, thank you so much. And then takes a napkin and goes, you know, like power washes his whole face. Like gets the eyebrows and everything. Bro, like you're an aggressive eater. Come on, somebody. Not everybody that says something hard to us is a critic. Sometimes they're a coach. And both can feel the same because they say things that are hard to hear. What the difference is, is the heart of the person presenting, the heart of the presenter. We live in a, co- we live in a culture, we live in a day and time where we grew up with way too many participation trophies. And we don't want to hear hard things. The difference between criticism and truth we don't want to hear, first and foremost, is the heart of the person saying it. Secondly, is the heart of the receiver. And this I have way more control over. If you're always the victim, pretty soon you're going to be sitting through lunch and then you're going to get in your car and you're going to drive down the road and you can go to your next meeting and then you're going to walk down the street and you're going to shake hands and you're going to hug your aunt and you're going to ask somebody out on a date if you're single, right? And then you're going to go in the bathroom and you're going to wash your hands and you're going to look up. <gasps> ah! How long has that been there since lunch? Bro, it's 4.30 in the afternoon. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's going to be you. You know why? Why didn't anybody tell me? Because you can't handle the hard stuff. You don't take the truth very well. And so people are not willing to risk ruining their day. They're not willing to risk bringing tension into the relationship to help make you better. Why? Because you'll emotionally blow up on them, play defensive, and be the victim. So why should they bother with their time? It's awful quiet in this Baptocostal church house right now. Man, I'm telling you, first service, they amen me down right there. They were clapping, standing ovation. Like, apparently they're talking about you people. I don't know. Do people falsely accuse us of stuff? Yes. Are there critics out there? <laughs> Absolutely. If you don't believe me, just get on Facebook. See what it has to say about me. It's very entertaining. But a person who loves you, a person who prays for you, a person who wants the best in your life, they want to be in relationship with you. They love you enough to risk the relationship, to risk the tension. You got a little something right there, right? Maybe, just maybe, we should take the example of Jesus and not always be the victim. He stood there in silence under their false accusations, under their lies, because he knew the truth will set you free. And it's a huge lesson for you and I is to rely on the truth. Let God be your defender. Let God be your vindicator. Mark says it this way, that, that Pilate goes, what, what should I do with this man that's the king of the Jews? Crucify him. Matthew says it a little bit differently. It doesn't mean that one of them got it wrong. More than likely, Pilate is hitting or having this argument with this crowd Probably the first time he says, what, what should I do with this man, the king of the Jews? Crucify him. Well, maybe you don't understand. What should I do? And Matthew says it this way in Matthew 27, verse 22. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with this man called Jesus, the Christ? The Christ means Messiah. We all have our own trial with this person called Jesus. We all have to decide. Is he who he says he is? We all have to render a verdict. 
If Jesus died on the cross, can that really pay for my sins? I'm going to be here next week. If he is the son of God, can he forgive? Can he save me? If his Bible, if his word is what you say it is, can I really read it? I mean, can it really set me free? Can it really help me daily in my life? We all have that same moment that Pilate had. So what do I do with this person called Jesus the Christ? And if you get that verdict wrong, there's no retrial. Eternity's on the line. Because my friend, heaven and hell are real, regardless of what TikTok wants to say. But if you get it right, if you invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you buy into becoming one of his disciples totally and full, like with your whole life, not just go to church when you can, not just give a little here and there, but like your whole life, the breath in your lungs, your, your hands, your feet, your heart, everything. If you can buy into that whole way, not only in eternity, not only in the next life, but in this life as well, the Spirit of God will come in and comfort you and encourage you and fill you and grow you and help you become more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. What are you going to do with this man called Jesus Christ? We all have our own verdict. Here's, here's, here's the gospel Plain, pure, and simple. All of us, every one of us, have fallen short of the glory of God. We're sinners. We're born into it. And while we were stuck and dead in that, there was nothing we could do. The Bible says that Christ laid down his life. He shed his blood. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus let the Romans brutally, cruelly nail him to a cross. His blood was shed so that you and I could be made clean and pure in the sight of God. Romans says, listen, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart, God supernaturally raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I wonder if somebody here today is wrestling with your own verdict of who do you say Jesus is? What should I do with this man called Jesus? And I want to help you confess and believe. I want to have that moment right here. Nobody moving around. Like eternity's on the line for somebody here. If you're here today, you know you're not in right relationship with God. Man, I'm just, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's the best way I know how to confess and believe. Just right there at your seat. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle. I'm not going to ask you to talk to anybody. I just want to lead you in this prayer. And we're going to confess and believe. And you can be made right with God and become a child of the King. Right there at your seat, if you know you're not in right relationship with God, just whisper this prayer with me. Just pray it with a sincere heart. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, come to you today because I need you. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm a sinner and I don't want that life anymore. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life? Would you save me? Begin to change me. Make me a new person. I may not understand all of this, but I'm taking a step of faith. Today, Jesus, I completely surrender my whole life to you.
Every head still bowed, every eye still closed, nobody looking around. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer with me, I promise I'm not gonna embarrass you. You don't have to stand up, you don't have to walk down. I just wanna pray for you real quick before I let you go. If you prayed that prayer, just lift your hand up real high. Anybody here today? Okay, I see it, young lady in the back. Anybody else? Okay, I see it. All right. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us today. The hands and hearts, Father, today that are stepping into relationship with you. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus that laid down his life so we could be forgiven. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit that pulls and begs us into relationship and convicts us so we could, we could respond in moments just like this. Father, for those hands in this room today that have responded, God, I, I, this is not an emotional decision, Lord, it's an eternal decision, but I pray, God, that in this moment, they know it's been taken care of. They know it's been nailed down. God, they would sense your presence and your forgiveness. God, fill them with your Holy Spirit. Bring great Christians around them to help them take their next baby step. Lord, this is hard to understand. This is hard to walk out. God, I love you and I thank you. I thank you for a church. It's an inviting church and a bringing church and, and willing to do whatever it takes short of sin. Father, to love the next generation and get them in places where they can hear the gospel. Father, we go to, to places around the globe where we can love and train up leaders so people might hear the gospel. Lord, that we wanna see people know God and find freedom and relationship, discover their purpose. Lord, and that all comes together, together making a difference. We love you. We thank you. We're excited about what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, come on, dig deep and give God the biggest praise you got in your belly. Amen, everybody. Amen. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I wanna invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.